Well, again, good morning. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we sure are glad to have you with us. And um, if you're not visiting, I hope you'll say hello to somebody who you don't know this morning. Uh, we're well into our sermon series on the life of Jesus as told by the Apostle Matthew in his gospel. And that gospel tells us, focuses on the fact that Jesus is our king and he's bringing his kingdom to the earth. Joel spoke a couple of weeks ago from Matthew 16, uh, which began with the Lord telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, be mistreated by the Jews, suffer and die at the hands of the Romans, and then rise from the dead after three days. And Joel talked about how the Lord just kept dashing the expectations and the hopes and dreams of the disciples about what his kingdom was going to look like. And then last week, Jordan spoke to us from Matthew 17, where Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto this mountain, and they saw him transfigured in light and heard the audible voice of the eternal God. Um, Jesus spoke, I'm sorry, Jordan, who is not Jesus, Jordan spoke about how following Jesus is this combination of the suffering, the death, the dying of Mount the Mount of Golgotha and the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. It illustrates the both and, the life of glory and the life of suffering that is ours if we follow Jesus. Well, this week we're in chapter 18, which focuses heavily on community life, the life of the community of God in the kingdom of God. The chapter addresses several important interconnected aspects of that communal life. As follows, it, it, it starts with humble yourself, not just before God, but before each other. It goes on to say, don't lead each other into temptation. Don't cause each other to stray from the flock. And with humility, help each other when we inevitably do fall away, when we fail. And in humility, forgive each other repeatedly. Now, chapter 18 is a long chapter, and I I tried really hard to figure out how not to read the whole thing, but we're going to. So, I encourage you to open up to Matthew 18. I'm in the ESV, but you can read along. Uh, We're going to read the whole thing, because it really is one big, giant, long thought with lots of aspects. Let's start. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones to to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary for temptations to come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine of the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices more over it than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm telling you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I say to you again, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I must forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or in other translations, seven times 70. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will repay everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, says grieved in the, in the New American Standard. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, the Lord says, my heavenly father will do every to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how you love us. We marvel at how hard you have worked and are working to make us like yourself. To make us free. To make us happy. To be productive citizens in your kingdom. Help us today, Lord. Help us to see more of you. See more of your kingdom. Help us to see more of ourselves as we look at this passage in Matthew. We ask you, living spirit of Christ Jesus, teach us all things. Amen.
Well, like you, you may have heard many sermons or Bible studies based on various parts of this chapter. Sermons on humility, evangelistic gospel messages about how God leaves the 99 to chase the one. Messages on resolving church conflict and church discipline. Sermons on forgiveness. Those are all well and good. They really are. But when they're broken apart, they miss the idea that the entire chapter is a single discourse on how to live together. About not seeking our own glory. About humbling ourselves before one another. Considering the interests of the community and its members as more important than our own We're to live with humility toward one another. We're humbly helping each other along the way and humbly forgiving each other again and again when we invariably fail. Let's let's look at some of what we just read. Verse 1 sets the stage for the whole chapter and for the whole discourse. The disciples want to know who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This, This question was apparently on their minds a lot. We read in the Gospel of Luke that on the last day of the Lord's life, the night he was betrayed, in the upper room, the disciples were still arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest. Jesus does his best here to help them understand that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, greatness is found in humility. In fact, entrance into the kingdom depends on it. And as it goes on, Jesus instructs them and us on things that we should not do and things that we should do in relationship to one another. Well, first, what should we not do? In very graphic terms, the Lord cautions against causing one another to fail, to sin, to go astray. One of our fellow citizens of the kingdom. It would be better for the citizen who causes another citizen of the kingdom to stumble if he were dropped into the depths of the sea with a 200-pound stone roped around his neck. That's what the Lord says graphically. Now, ouch. That's what I think when I read that. The point is, don't tempt each other. Don't lead each other astray. Don't teach or imply to others that there's life somewhere apart from Christ. What should we do then? Well, when we get into verses 8 and 9, we read that stuff about cutting off your hand and your foot and plucking out your eye. The message there is to be ruthless with your own sin. It's not, you know, the Lord is not recommending that we actually mutilate our bodies, but he's using mutilation of the body, which was a terrible thing for Jews. It's ethically wrong. He uses that as a powerful metaphor for how ruthless we ought to be with our own sin Now, you don't see all of your sin. I don't either. So ask God, the Holy Spirit, and those who know you for clarity about the idols in your life. We are all much better at seeing the idols in the lives of each other than we are in ourselves. So we should take advantage of the better eyesight that our brothers and sisters have um, to learn about ourselves. When we do see our sin, we ought to deal with it. We'll get into this a little bit more later as well. Deal with it through immediate confession and repentance with your brothers and sisters. This is part of being humbled before each other. The specifics of this will look different in different situations. If you sin against a particular person, confess it to that person, repent, and ask for forgiveness. Make restitution if that's part of the the problem. 
Other situations might require you to confess to others as well for the sake of bringing it to the light and removing the fangs of sin that has a hold on you in your life. Sometimes you've got to bring other people in. That has been true of my life more times than I can count. The point of this graphic metaphor is that sin that is undealt with in your life, in your heart, is more destructive than losing a hand or a foot or an eye. Or another way to say it that might be a little more relevant to us, undealt with sin is more destructive than losing your entire life savings or your retirement plan. It violates the economy of the kingdom of God. It's destructive. And in a very practical here and now way, sin separates us from fellowship with God and with each other. Well, what else should we do? What else is in this passage? We should give ourselves to helping one another. Every one of us sins. Every one of us goes astray. Every single one of us is sheep number 100 from time to time. I am the one that wanders away from the flock. You are. Be the shepherd. That's what this passage is about. Be the shepherd who lovingly goes after the one who is straying. The Lord is telling the community, no, this isn't just an evangelistic thing about God will go after the, the one who went away. That's true. He does. But he is inviting the, the community, be the shepherd that lovingly goes after the one who is straying. For this to be done well requires being in close relationship to your brother and sister. So that you can actually see what's going on. And so that they know that you love them. That you're for them as you confront them. Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, had this motto for leaders. A leader must earn or win the right to be heard by being an authentic friend to the people that he's, the kids he's working with. And also for it to be done well, it should, you should be able to weep over the sin, the error of your brother or sister. If you can't... A guy that I spent a year with in school named Dan Ellender would say, if you cannot cry, if you cannot, if you don't shed tears when you're dealing with the sin of your brother or sister, you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you can't see your own sinfulness and know that you're all in this together. So for it to be done well, be in close relationship and walk in their shoes. When we go to our friend, When we go to our brother or sister in Christ, we go with the humility that's born out of the knowledge that without, apart from the grace of God, we are all lost. But we also come with this conviction that when one of us strays from the flock, we owe it to each other to try to help each other find our way back in. It's a community exercise. So Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go talk to him or her about it in private. And if he listens, you will have restored that wandering fellow citizen to the kingdom. But there's a difficult side to this part of the passage. Jesus tells us that if our brother sins and we go to him in private, and he does not listen, then we should take one or two more others Witnesses, he calls them, with us to humbly urge repentance. If possible, I would say, take others who are in close relationship to that person. If a triad is functioning well, 
Members of a triad are great for this. But if he refuses to listen to even to those few people who are in close relationship, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now here is where you want to bring in the elders. This is not an encouragement to stand up in a church meeting and point out somebody else's fault and how they're not repenting. If it ever has to come to the point where it is literally a public event, leave it to the elders. If he refuses to listen even to the church, separate yourself from him and him from the church. Now that sounds totally harsh and actually sounds like it's out of whack with the part that we're going to get to about forgiveness. How can these things jive? Um, But it harks back to that part of the passage about cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, gouging out your eye to save the whole body. This is the corporate perspective on that part of the passage. When Paul further unpacks this whole idea in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, we can see that it is not punitive, but meant to be part of the process of restoration. It's also about protecting the integrity of the body of Christ. It's also a link to the practical ethos of the church that Jesus is founding and the nation of Israel from which it springs. Because the law of God given through Moses also focused heavily on this idea of interpersonal relationships and the health and vitality of the whole community. Well, this last section in in the chapter does come to the issue of forgiveness, which is a further extension of humility among the Lord's people. In verse 21, Peter asks how often he should forgive his brother who sins against him. And Jesus, using hyperbole, basically says an indefinite number. It's not like it's really 70 times or 490 times or whatever, and you've got to keep track of it in your little book. He's just saying, keep doing it. And then he told this parable that we just read about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And you remember it? A slave owed this unpayable amount. The 10,000 talents is more than 15 years of wages for the common laborer. Is this unpayable? And he asked for more time, and he insisted he would pay it back, which is complete hubris. It's unpayable. No, no, give me time, I'll do it. The king of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him. And the forgiven slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him one day's wages. Mistreated him. Um, The other fellow slaves were grieved when they saw this. And they reported it to their lord, the king. The king summoned the wicked servant and said, I forgave you everything because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have treated your fellow slave the same way I had mercy on you? And moved with anger, he handed him over, this is in the the New American, to the torturers until he should repay the unpayable debt that was owed to him. The Lord's last statement is especially bracing. He takes that story and brings it into the kingdom and says... My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I wrote in here, oh dear, (laughs) this is hard. I mean, this is like, ooh. But it's also a direct echo of what the Lord said in Matthew 6, right at the end of the teaching the, the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer. He says, 
You need to forgive each other if you want to enjoy the forgiveness of the Father. Oh Lord, what then? What do we do with all this? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and before each other to enjoy the fruits of fellowship. If we want to enjoy fellowship with God and with each other, we will be humble. We will not be looking to be the greatest. Here's some questions. Do you think ill of others because they have more of whatever you think is very important, more than what you have? Might be money, might be position, might be really well-mannered children, might be having children at all. Don't think ill of what a brother or sister has. If the Lord makes the rain the productive rain that brings up the crops, if he makes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous, he surely is the one who makes productive rain fall on his, the, the, peop- the citizens of his kingdom. What people have, you should ascribe to the Lord. Well, perhaps you are one who has very much. Maybe you think you're hot stuff because you have more than others. You've managed to be successful to have more money or to have kids who are better behaved or to have attained a more prominent position. As Paul says in Philippians 2, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Do you secretly look down on others because they have less or because their their lives look like a colossal mess? Do you not know that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights? Every good and perfect gift If you have something worth having, you have it from Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And we have these things in order to meet the needs of those who do not have enough. Especially those of us who have more than we need. So, for you who have little, you who have just enough, you have more than you need. God is the shepherd of all. Be humble in your relationship to one another. And when you find you are not, confess it. Work it out before God and with your brothers and sisters in relationship. Again, triads can be great for this. The point isn't beating yourself up. It isn't about beating each other up. The point is saying amen to God who desires so much that we would be conformed to the image of His Son so that we can live in freedom so that we can live in joyful and free fellowship with Him and each other and help one another in everything, but especially in this matter of helping each other when we go astray. Are you afraid to do that? I am sometimes. That's not a pleasant thing to do. Perhaps it feels judgmental. Maybe we don't want to meddle in somebody else's life because we don't want somebody else meddling in ours. Whatever the case, it's not kindness that motivates us to keep our mouth shut. If we know each other and we love each other well, we will plead with one another when we go astray. We will help each other find our way back into the flock. And at the very least, we will not be those who lead other people astray away from the flock. 
And lastly, forgive one another repeatedly. Let's not take lightly the Lord's stern words in Matthew 6 and here in Matthew 18. The lack of forgiveness between brothers and sisters is destructive to both parties. And it's very destructive to our relationship with God himself. We are greatly and completely forgiven by the God of the universe, by the shed blood of his son. We are. We are that slave, that servant with an unpayable debt who has been forgiven and set free by the king. Rather than being sent to debtor's prison where we belong, we've been set free to live lives of joy and purpose. And we must do likewise with our brothers and sisters. We must forgive. And where we struggle to forgive, we must come repeatedly to the Lord, the king of our hearts, the one who can change our hearts. And deal honestly not only with God, but with each other as we struggle with these things. The Lord longs for us. He longs for you and for me to be free from sin. And he paid with his life for it to be so. We've been delivered from sin and death. We have been set free from the power of sin at the cross. That work is finished. And yet, in a practical day-to-day sense, as we read in 1 John, our walking in freedom depends in no small amount on walking in the light, bringing the darkness that's in our hearts into the light where it can be overwhelmed by the light. And that is a community exercise. That's the point of chapter 18. It's a community exercise. It goes on between us and the king one-on-one. But it also goes on between and among us in community as we work these things out with the help of the Holy Spirit. And that is how, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God function. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not just you and Jesus. It's all of us together under the headship of the Lord and in relationship with him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And we thank you that when we came to you with an unpayable debt, you had compassion. And you made provision for that unpayable debt through the blood of your Son at the cross. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us life. Life in the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we... We long to to live with you in your kingdom and live in community with each other. And we ask you to take these words, impart them to us, help us to live by them, help us to love one another, help us to humble ourselves before each other, to help each other walk along the way and to forgive each other again and again. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.